Okay, let's see. Hijack, triage, gold balls, tempest. Hey, Miles, uh, what's up to? I'm trying to figure out where all the kids from Cyclops' school ended up after Secret Wars. Well, gold balls is fine. He's been running around with Spider-Man. And triage showed up in Uncanny. I think Hijack is still MIA, but he was never too big on the whole superhero thing to begin with, so hopefully he's just off living his own life somewhere, bossing cars around or whatever. <laughs> Aw, now I'm imagining them following him home like stray cats. Uh, what about Tempest? Eva Bell? Oh, God, you know, I have no idea. I don't think she's shown up at all. What was her deal exactly? I know she could stop time. Is that where the fast aging came from? Nah, she came by the extra years honest. I mean, in a jumping around the timeline and getting stranded in a far future for seven years where she got married, had a kid, and ended up apprenticed at Liana Rasputin, who is that future sorceress supreme type honest, but honest. Awesome. Right? What happened? Eh, future got destroyed, Eva jumped instinctively and ended up in the distant past. By the time she'd made her way back to that future, it had completely changed, and the Sorcerer Supreme told her that because of what had happened earlier, neither the future she remembered nor the family she'd had there had ever even existed. Harsh. Was she still Ilyana's apprentice, at least? Ilyana? The Sorcerer Supreme. You just said- Oh, oh, no, no, no. Ilyana was only Sorcerer Supreme in Eva's original future. So who was it in the new one? Still Stephen Strange? Tony Stark. What?! J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 107 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. All right, so we are back with the New Mutants, but more importantly, well, as importantly, also importantly, we are back with Inferno. Where we are going to be for the rest of our natural lives. This is a big crossover, y'all. It totally is, but, you know, to be fair, I really feel like the X-Men line has earned it. Like, all of the different strands building up to Inferno, those have been building for literally years at this point. So we are actually continuing straight out of where we left off in episode 101 at the end of the Gossamer arc. When Liana tried to teleport the team back home, and they landed in limbo. But first, maybe we should talk about a little more of the background of New Mutants that have led them up to Inferno. So, previously on New Mutants. A lot of what we're going to be talking about this episode goes back to the Magic and Storm miniseries. We covered this in episode 19, Acorns and Swords. And I'm going to go ahead and say, if you haven't listened to that episode or read the miniseries, I'd recommend that you pause right now and go back and do one or the other. We'll still be here. It is really, really important. The time that Ilyana spends in Limbo, the time where she grows up from being like a six or seven year old little girl to being the teenager that we know and love and are terrified of in New Mutants, that stuff is going to be super important to all of this. So we'll recap a little bit, but you really owe it to yourself to read it or at least listen to the episode. Right, because this arc, the three issues we're talking about today are the end of Ilyana Rasputin's story in pretty much every significant way. This wraps up pieces that were laid out, God, six years ago in 1983 in that initial miniseries. Let's very briefly look at the status quo now as it relates to that. So Ilyana was this little kid. She was Pyotr Rasputin, Colossus's younger sister, who ended up living with the X-Men. And during a danger room exercise was briefly pulled into limbo, a hell dimension. Now the X-Men got her back out after what seemed like only a few minutes. But she was, I think, seven years older. Right, because it turns out time flows very differently in Limbo, which is where the weird disc portal thing led to. And so she had spent a horrible, horrible childhood and adolescence in this demon realm as basically the apprentice-slash-servant-slash-prisoner-slash-SKP of the demon lord Belasco. 
He had trained her to follow in his footsteps, and he'd done a few specific things. He had pulled out sections of her soul and used them to make this bloodstone amulet that she wears. And that had sort of triggered in her this persona called the Dark Child, which is sort of the hell end of Ilyana. She had also encountered and spent a lot of time with alternate versions of the X-Men. These were versions of the X-Men who had come in after her, not the main 616 versions. Basically, this is a timeline split. And one after another after another, they were all killed. Colossus died very early on. Nightcrawler and Shadowcat were to various extents really horribly twisted by Limbo. Storm held on the longest and became a sorceress in her own right. And along with Belasco was sort of the other half of significant influence on magic. Magic ultimately sort of found a path magically. And she also took the codename Magic in the course of this, I should mention. But Magic with a K, because that's way cooler. That's going to get really confusing in this particular arc, by the way, because there's a lot of both kinds. And they're not always well distinguished. So someone will be like, look, there's magic below. And it's like, well, which one? Sometimes both. Sometimes neither. Although right. if it was neither, I don't know why you would say it. But the point stands. To be a jerk, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> there's a we... lot going on. There's chaos. But we digress. So she ended up sort of walking a path between the two. So she uses dark magic, but ultimately for primarily light ends. One of the primary ways that this manifests is something called the Soul Sword, which is essentially an extension of Ilyana herself. For the most part, she is the only one able to use or draw it, although once when the Beyonder basically excised the entire Dark Child persona from her, it reverted to and sort of homed to Kitty Pride. And that'll come up later, like in Excalibur, but that's neither here nor there. Right. So that's in England, in fact. Ilyana has been becoming, over the course of New Mutants, increasingly corrupted by Limbo and vice versa. Limbo is in some ways an extension of her and of her will. She's its absolute ruler, but she's losing control of it. And at the same time, there are parties there who are making a play for power, most significantly the demon Sim. Sim has been around since Ilyana's childhood. He was effectively somewhere between babysitter, minion, and torturer. And he is now infected via a brief incursion by Warlock's dad, Magus. With the transmode virus. So basically, we have this hell dimension, which kind of reflects Liana Rasputin's soul, that's full of demons, which are made of highly malleable, invincible circuit board. Liana had had the techno-organic infection in Limbo under control. She had left her soul sword planted there to control it, but she'd had to go retrieve it in order to save the new mutants during the Gossamer arc. Gossamer is complicated. She's a new member of the team. She's a space alien. She has pheromone powers. That's really all you need to know in this context. Speaking of which, who's on the New Mutants? Okay, so right now, the New Mutants, after various members have quit and or died, are Cannonball, Mirage, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, Warlock, and, briefly, Gossamer, in addition to Magic herself. And right now, they are in deep, deep trouble. Now, last episode, we covered the Exterminators miniseries. That was sort of our introduction into Inferno. And we mentioned that it crosses over very directly and ends in the New Mutants issues of the same crossover. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Before we do jump in, though, I want to talk a little bit more about Inferno, because Exterminators, it was an Inferno tie-in, but not an official central part of Inferno. This definitely is. The New Mutants books, the X-Men and X-Factor books, those are all the center of the Inferno crossover. But there are tons of tie-ins all over the Marvel Universe. So the Avengers, Daredevil, Power Pack, Cloak and Dagger, Fantastic Four, various Spider-Men, and Damage Control all had Inferno issues. Miles, we've all got Inferno issues. We do. Well, but Inferno basically eats New York. There are a lot of New York-based superheroes 
and so forth. So it's got lasting impact. But in the X titles, and really in general, there are two major Inferno plots. One centers around the Dark Child, Ilyana Rasputin. And we saw the fringes of that next Terminators. We're going to see the center of that today. The other one, which is the second half of Inferno, is focused on the Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor. And we're going to be looking at that for the next couple episodes when we look at X-Factor and the X-Men. Yes. More importantly than any of that, though, in the Daredevil tie-in, Daredevil fights an evil vacuum cleaner. So, you know, there's that. Regardless, though, we're not here to talk about evil vacuum cleaners today, which is perhaps unfortunate. We're here to talk about Ilyana Rasputin and the New Mutants and their horrible, horrible adventures in Possessed Manhattan. So let's dive into that. Before they go to Possessed Manhattan, in fact, where last we left our heroes, they have just landed in Possessed Limbo, which may sound like a redundant term. But Limbo has been entirely overtaken by the techno-organic virus, the transmode virus. It's full of demons. They are swarming. They're everywhere. And they can't get out. Yeah, and I actually want to talk a little bit about the art in, well, this arc in general, but this scene in particular. So this is still penciled by Brett Blevins. He's been penciling for quite a while, basically since Louis Simonson took over. And inked by Al Williamson. And, you know, I have been really, really, really tough on Blevins historically, and I stand by that. I think his early stuff in New Mutants is among my least favorite This is the arc for me where he kind of redeems himself as series artist. And some of that is what he's doing. Some of that is Williamson's inking, which has become much, much looser and and more dynamic and which which I think serves both Blevins art and the greater story much better than it had in previous issues. Yeah. And I think where Blevins really excels is in stories exactly like this one, where you have, you know, high soap opera stuff with teenagers, where a little bit of cartooniness and expressiveness serves the story well, but where you also have horrible, surreal, weird Dadaist demon shit going on. Like there is some evil cartoony, weird stuff happening here. So I mentioned when we were talking about the animator arc that Blevins is really, really good at like EC house style horror, but that EC being the publisher that was most known for publishing horror comics like before the right, like creepy, eerie, all of those guys. But that I found the marriage of the two styles really jarring, like that he would go back and forth between one and the other in that arc. Here he's found a much, much tighter synthesis of the two, and it works really beautifully. It's cartoony in ways such that the cartooniness adds to the horror element. Miles, when we were talking about this earlier, made the comparison to some of the darker parts of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I think is are really apt. And again, we'll get back to that at more length in a little bit when we get there narratively. Actually, I'm really looking forward to putting together the visual companion to this because, again, for me, like this is the point where Blevins really clicks. Absolutely. Now, in addition to the line art, I want to talk a little bit about the way the colors are handled here. So the colors in this issue are done by Glynis Oliver, who has done like a million freaking comics. I mean, almost everything we've covered has had Glynis Oliver somewhere in it. In a way, it almost seems like she's being a little bit lazy in her colors, because when the New Mutants are in limbo, there's just this sea of demons being led by Sim facing off with them, and they're all colored the same shade of purple. But you know, I actually really dig that. Well, and she's varied those up before enough previously that this seems to me like it has to be deliberate, that this is sort of the sense of the demons as a swarm, as as a homogenous mass all overtaken by the techno-organic virus. Right, and that's something we're going to see all throughout the New Mutants part of Inferno, is just hordes and swarms and seas of demons. The demons are overwhelming. The demons are almost part of the landscape themselves because they're just so numerous. It's clear that the New Mutants aren't going to win this fight by just punching a bunch of demons because the demons will never stop coming. And the art, in fact, the colors, sell the hell out of that. I gotta say, you know... I have to kind of miss Bogdanov here, John Bogdanov, who drew the Exterminators, because his ability to draw those big, swarmy demon crowd scenes and still infuse all of the individual demons with a lot of personality was something I really, really enjoyed and something we definitely don't get here. But I mean, sheer volume has to be a factor as well. Yeah, and Blevins does a pretty good job with that. But yeah, Bogdanov was absolutely superlative. I agree with you there. 
okay, so colors and line art and stuff aside, yeah, the new mutants are in limbo, and it's horrible. Like, Ilyana used to have control over this place, and now it's clear she does not at all. Ilyana's stepping discs, the way she teleports, are basically an extension of, again, limbo. They move her to other places via limbo, and she can't get out of limbo now, but she can teleport around it. When the new mutants are confronted by Sim and an army of demons, when Ilyana finds out that even though she runs Sim through with a soul sword, she cuts him into pieces, he's completely fine, thanks to the techno-organic virus, they teleport the hell away. And they teleport away and immediately find themselves in Belasco's throne room. This was the center of Ilyana's screwed up childhood. This is where a lot of the definitive confrontations and a lot of the deaths in the Magic miniseries took place. And in fact, there are relics of those still scattered all around. Nightcrawler's foot or the bones of it are still fused partway into the floor. Kitty Pride, who is cat in this universe's warped feline skull, is sitting at the foot of the throne. And this is super tragic because if you've read Magic, the miniseries that is, and have been following Ilyana for the last so many years, she's tried so hard to get past her childhood, to grow up, to be a good person, and yet here she is with those consequences still confronting her right in the face. And this is something her teammates have never known about. This is something no one has ever known about. She has told nobody what went down in limbo when she was growing up. Like, no one has those details. They're horrified and forced to actually physically confront the stuff she's horrified as well. I blamed Belasco for what I had become, but I I chose it. I must have. No one made me murder my best friends. And so seeing Ilyana again after all she's been through, then just completely taking all the blame for everything that she's done, for everything she's been forced to do, again, this is harsh, harsh stuff, and I just feel awful for her here. Well, and we know that, but the other new mutants don't. They see her, and they see this as validating their worst fears about what she is and who she is. That understanding isn't going to come till a little bit later, when she tries to teleport again and actually pulls the new mutants into Limbo's past up on a cliff where, within view, Sim is dragging a child, Ilyana, by the foot. Yeah, this is Ilyana at maybe six or seven, like right after she came into limbo in a pretty pink dress with her long blonde hair. Like, she just looks so innocent. Sim is specifically punishing her, yelling at her for refusing to smile. And that ups the ante of horror in this scene for me so much because so, and we talked about, again, we talked about this in episode 19, but so much of the horror of Ilyana's childhood and so much of the stuff that goes on around her and the parts of the abuse that we actually see on panel about her childhood that are about the way that society sort of chews up and spits out little girls. Yeah, if it was subtle the way gender was handled in the Magic miniseries, it is not subtle here. Louise Simonson is directly addressing that stuff, and I think it's a very good thing that she is, because Sim is, you know, in some ways, he is an, a purple demony incarnation of masculine privilege and violence. Yeah, and again, especially as it applies to little girls, and we're going to talk about this more and more as this series progresses, because it becomes a more and more overt analogy. For now, the new mutants see this happening. You know, they see this demon dragging a little kid and their first thought is we have to stop this. Obviously, we intervene. Right, because, you know, they're seeing magic the way she's looking right now. This teenage Ileana Rasputin in her sort of demonic looking silver armor covering most of her body with her red ram's demon horns coming out of her head and her red pointy tail. Like, Ileana is in her dark child form. She's stuck there. But this little girl is just an innocent little girl. And it's Ilyana herself who stops her friends from saving her younger version. And we can't stop him, don't you see? We have to leave her. Me. To learn what I can from this. A lesson in hatred. So I'll be around to defeat Belasco and become this monster that I am. Man, this is like the darkest Doctor Who episode ever. 
Everyone remembers Limbo as this hell dimension full of demons and dark magic and stuff, but I think a lot of people forget that it's also all about time travel. It's also all about being able to see your past and sometimes future self and questioning just how much agency you have in your own fate, whether you should change it, whether it would do more harm than good to do so. That's true of Limbo, but it's also acutely true of Ilyana's story. If there's anything that it's about, if there are any themes here, they're the tug of war between agency and inevitability. And Limbo physically and the sheer physics of time travel there reinforces that really beautifully. At this point, the other new mutants are rethinking their initial judgment of Ilyana. They're sort of starting to see the extent to which she became what she had to become to survive this and to survive her childhood. And at the forefront of that actually is Rain, is the same classmate who has historically judged her most harshly and been most leery of her in the past. Right, because Rain comes from an extremely conservative religious upbringing, and so she's always seen Ilyana as this incarnation of evil, and she's been terrified of her. And that's really starting to change here. We saw a little bit of that in the Gossamer arc, but here as well. I had such terrible thoughts, Ilyana, that you were a murderer and consorted willingly with demons, that it was your fault that you were here, but you were an innocent baby when you came, too young to understand... None of this is your fault. Again, yeah, we saw a bit of this in the Gossamer arc, and Rain is in a lot of ways the second protagonist of this arc. This is functionally Ilyana's story, but in a lot of ways it's also about Rain as her mirror and foil. In fact, and we'll get to this more later, I think this may be, for me, the definitive Rain Sinclair story as much as it's Ilyana's story. Now, what the New Mutants don't see when they leave is what stops Sim from killing child Ilyana at this point, and that is nastier. And this is kind of a new thing, because Nastier wasn't around when the Magic miniseries came out. I don't think we've talked much about who Nastier is. Nastier is a demon who made his first appearance relatively recently in context of the Inferno buildup, I think mostly in X-Factor and X-Men. He's been talking to Madeline Pryor. He was a central figure in Exterminators. He works for Sim, but is clearly making a grab for power on its own. And here we discover that he has made Sim promise that Sim won't kill Ilyana, and specifically that he'll save her for Nastier. And this is interesting because we have this new character being forcibly retconned into Ilyana's backstory, but we also have someone missing whose absence is made, I think, a lot more obvious by comparison. Right? Blasco isn't in this at all, and it's really, really weird because he should be the central figure and he should be tapped into everything going on here because he's running limbo at this point. But yeah, no, he just doesn't show up at all. Yeah, I mean, Blasco's dead in the modern timeline. He was defeated by Ilyana at the end of the Magic miniseries, but he was like the central tormentor even more than Sim of her entire childhood. He'd still be around at this specific point where they are in the past. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, poor Belasco. No one loves him. It's true. That's okay. He's a jerk. He's um, totally a jerk. Speaking of jerks, Nastier actually intercepts the New Mutants on their next teleport, and he explains that Belasco, being, again, a jerk, originally scorned Nastier as his apprentice. Nastier wanted to basically be what Liana grew up to become. Whoops. Instead, Nastier stole Belasco's spellbook, took it to the past, and became a master of the dark arts. He has, in fact, retconned himself into Ilyana's earlier story. Okay, that's pretty awesome, I'm not gonna lie. And he offers to help the New Mutants defeat Sim and escape, and he says that he's doing this because he loves Ilyana. Yeah, he wants her to become fully corrupt so she can be his dark bride, so she can choose that of her own volition. He is literally nice guy TMing her here. He is in, what, nastier guy TM? Nastier guy. Oh god, he's such an asshole. But yeah, no, he's, he's basically straight up nice guy TMing. Like, this is again all about another character who wants Ilyana to be a very specific version of the princess or little girl role in the fairy tale. Or in this case, the corrupted princess. Darker, crueler, etc. But the prize at the end of the journey of the tower. 
that she is what he is working towards, towards ownership of. You know, until we started covering this, I mean, I've read Inferno a number of times, but I hadn't really looked at just how much is going on gender-wise here. There's a lot going on. I think it's because when we're going gender politics in Inferno, the automatic focus is justly a lot of the time going to be the Goblin Queen stuff. Madeline Pryor, yeah. Well, Madeline Pryor and also Alex and the way that triangle and situation plays out in the dynamics in it, because it's much more over it there. But here... I mean, again, these are elements that have always been part of Liana's story. And she's a character who's always been sort of teased as being kind of like she tends to be presented narratively as a fairy tale character, as a fairy tale princess. Like there's a lot of that coding around her, the way she's presented visually, the motifs that show up around her, you know, the fantasy sequences that play out around her. And I think the thing that this goes back to is that there are two kinds of girls in fairy tales. There are the ones who are our agonists, our actors, our protagonists, and there are the ones who are objects and which Ileana is and which she's ultimately going to get to be and which one she has struggled all her life to be against the machinations of people generally much more powerful than she is are two very different things. And here she does claim some of that agency in some ways by becoming an object because she thinks about it and Nastier is offering her the ability to defeat Sim and escape Limbo if she just agrees to be what he wants her to be. And she figures, well, hey, she could keep her individuality and have all of her friends be stuck in limbo forever and probably die horribly and have the world suffer horribly. Or she could make that sacrifice and lose that agency and maybe do some good. Well, and that's her story so far. Everything she's become has been a compromise. It's been a devil's bargain and the lesser of two evils. That's how she survived growing up in limbo. That's how she became the dark child. That's how she got her friends out of, you know, the exploding space station they were stuck on. I mean, I'm just saying, when I was a teenager, like, I thought I had it really rough that nobody could ever understand the stuff I was going through. Could have been so much worse, it turns out. I didn't have any demons that I know of in my past. Right. Nastier, at this point, sends them to Sim, and Ilyana still can't kill him, but she can beat him effectively enough to take back her soul sword, at which point she reverts into the full Dark Child. She just becomes sort of the scaly red demon form that we've seen before mostly as an expression of her greatest fear. Exactly. This is what, you know, she saw as the ultimate failing for her to become this fully red, scaly, demonic figure. And now this is something she chooses, and we're barely into the event. Yeah, I was going to say, and we're a quarter of the way into the crossover, and this is the first compromise. Oh, yeah. That's one of the things I like about Inferno, is that it's not just, hey, everything's been leading up to this event, and now the event happens. It's everything's been leading up to this event, and now the event spirals wildly out of control in ways nobody could have predicted. Using her newfound power, the power that comes into fully claiming the Dark Child persona, she is able to basically rend a hole in reality and step straight out of limbo and into an exterminator's crossover. Yeah, she had intended just to take her friends, the New Mutants, back to the Xavier School, where it was safe. But instead, thanks to Nastier being a manipulative douchebag, she finds herself opening a giant portal over Times Square, where she and a shit ton of demons start raining down. Now, if you've read Exterminators or listened to episode 106, you know that Nastier has been laying the foundation for this for a while. This is all his machinations. What surprises me is how surprised Ilyane is by the fact that he betrays her here. He's a demon. I mean, kid, who even raised you? Right? I mean, you know, I could just see her confronting him like, Nastier, how could you possibly betray me? And he's just like, dude, demon. I mean, come on. Yeah, no, he is the bag that says do not open dead dove. (laughs) Well, I don't know what I was expecting. Meanwhile, 
Hell is loose in New York City. Oh God, it is so terrifying. The Empire State Building is growing and growing. And from nearby, the inner circle of the Hellfire Club is watching and just sort of being a little bit baffled as New York, yeah, goes full on horror movie. And it gets really graphic. I was really, really surprised by this because New Mutants is a dark book and it's a violent book. But like we literally see a viewing station, a binocular station on the Empire State Building, rip out someone's eyes and take them. Oh, it's so great. It's like, my eyes now, like them. And okay, so this part right here is actually one of my favorite things about Inferno. I mean, it's super messed up and gruesome and not okay, but it's also like gleefully, hilariously terrible. Like a pair of binoculars just stole a dude's eyes and is very pleased with itself. It's Looney Tunes from hell. It really is. And I mean, there's another scene uh, right after as the inner circle races to save people trying to escape the Empire State Building who are going down in an elevator. Like they race the elevator down and when it opens just gallons, I mean, like a sea blood of and blood and skeletons yeah. pours out. And, you know, we talked about Brett Blevins' style being good for this, and it really is, because it's just cartoony enough to have that kind of, like, gleeful twinge of of demonic schadenfreude to it, but it's also realistic enough to be genuinely horrifying. Yeah, again, this is the point where we actually see a really effective synthesis of the two styles that were very, very separate in the animator arc. I would also like to point out, although it's a bit of a non-sequitur, that uh, Sebastian Shaw is now decked out in an amazing purple jumpsuit. Oh, he totally is, because the last time we saw him go into battle mode, he was just wearing tiny tiny briefs and a sash, right? God, the Hellfire Club is amazing. Okay, I have a theory about this. So you know the movie Legend, right? And you know how Tom Cruise goes through all of these horrible hell sewers just wearing like this male shirt and no pants? And I get really, really upset about it and have to stop watching the movie because it's so horrifying. He's not wearing shoes either. And that's the worst part because he's wading into opaque hell sewers. And I'm like, why would you do that? I do appreciate that it is, you know, a precise carryout of, of the trope in which the female eye candy character wanders into hell with a big sword and no pants. But either way, like, I just, I pants for everyone and especially wear appropriate footwear when you're going to fight in hell. He has a whole armory and he doesn't get shoes. What the right? hell is wrong with this guy? So, you see, that's my point. Because I, legend, legend really upsets me. That's fair. Although Tim Curry's pretty great in it. But so that's the point. Sebastian but, but Shaw. But shoes, shoes, pants. Sebastian Shaw has seen Legend and has realized, dude, if I ever fight a bunch of demons, I am so wearing pants and shoes. When you are wading into literal hell, you put on some goddamn pants. <laughs> I cannot disagree with that, and neither can Sebastian Shaw in his glorious purple jumpsuit. Magneto has also uh, woven steel threads through everyone's clothing, like, clandestinely, so that he can float them all around, which, right, yeah. which again, is a detail I absolutely love. Do you think he just, like, if they're being obnoxious, do you think he does the stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself thing? I think he totally does, yeah. But I'm also just imagining him, because you know how the Hellfire Club has that craft night, we assume, to make their ridiculous costumes? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. I, I think, like, he just sort of sneaks into the craft room in the middle of the night while they're all, you know, watching Matlock or whatever and it's just like all right steel thread into all the clothes they'll never know it's gonna be awesome i'm gonna use the power of magnetism and he does why matlock i don't know i mean what else would they be watching is matlock like evil magnum pi eh, i mean not exactly i just feel like they would like matlock you know celine's like hey you know you know what i've been missing in nova roma matlock clearly which brings us to new mutants number 72 demon rain starring and matlock Okay, not starring Matlock. Not starring Matlock, but but featuring what may be the most metal album cover title page of all time ever, including all of the Storm Asgard stuff. Actually, do you think there's a, a metal album called Demon Rain? I bet there is. I bet there are like 12. I bet there are like 20. I bet there are, yeah. yeah. There's a Slayer song called Raining Blood, you know, so there's that. Really? 
Of course. There's a Guitar Wolf song called Exploding Blood. That's the Adam X, the Xtreme song, I'm pretty sure. It's I really song. like to think so. Yeah. Guitar Wolf is so great. They are. Everyone but, should watch Wild Zero. It's an amazing movie. But yeah, this title page, you're totally right. Like the title. The, it's way better than Legend for the record, even though someone does run around in tiny pants, but he's not into hell, so it's okay. The title is in this like this red sort of jagged font. And there's this sketchy black and white giant stepping disc and pentagram in the sky and demons and flames raining down in the city below. It is super awesome, you guys. So I think we should talk about the opening narration because you thought this was really weird and I thought it really wasn't. Yeah, let's just go through it. It wasn't that Ilyana was vain. Beauty was as natural to her as breathing. She had always been beautiful, like a perfect pastel present just begging to be opened. But she liked it anyway when her looks took people's breath away. It almost made her forget what she was inside. So Miles looked at this and thought, this is specifically sexualization. This is creepy. And I looked at it and I went, no, I mean, it's sort of grooming for sexualization. It's objectification. But this is sort of ubiquitous to how people compliment little girls. Like even the, you know, you look so pretty, you just look just like a present. That's a phrase people use. That is freaking weird. Right? Yeah. And again, this is part of Ilyana's conflict. And this is Ilyana, again, as the fairy tale figure, too, that she's got, you know, the perfect, beautiful princess and also the monster. She is really both of those figures in her own story. And yeah, the narration actually mentions at one point that when Nastier rips the wrapping paper open to get to the present inside, it's full of dust and worms. And so, yeah, it's, it's a hell of a vivid mental image. I got to give it that. And it comes back too to the question of agency. Quote, how did she become this cringing monster? this wretched symbol, a jewel in the crown of conquest to be worn or tossed away, a possession, a trophy, a thing. You make a compelling argument. Thank you. <laughs> I try. So speaking of Ilyana as an object, she is currently being fought over by Nastir and Sim, and she is increasingly furious and horrified at the ways in which they are using her. Nastier is able to teleport her away, but Times Square is still in bad shape. The portal is still open, and it's not just the one that Eliana ripped open. There's something else going on, too. And this is, again, the thing we talked about in Exterminators, which is the big pentagram portal with the babies suspended around it. I gotta say, that is not a plot component I would have predicted. Flying babies! No! And yeah, and so the New Mutants are talking to the Exterminators, and in fact, this is a scene we see in Exterminators number four from the other side, which is kind of cool. But with the dialogue slightly different, which is a little weird. Yeah, I think like Boom Boom says something here that Richter said in the previous one, but whatever, it's, it's the same scene is the point. And so the two teams talk and agree to work together to go off in separate directions to close this portal, save the baby, save Ilyana, save the day. Yeah, if this were a musical, this would be where the big act one finale, everything is hopeful and going to be okay number happened. And in fact, I mean, Rain Wolfsbane herself says as they talk about this plan, and Ilyana will be free of her dark child curse. Oh, I do hope tis true. Oh, kiddo. Yeah, I mean, Rain becomes Ilyana's biggest cheerleader. She's just so convinced that somehow they're going to find a way to make this right. Now that she knows that Ilyana really is a good person, they're going to find a way to get her out of this so she can just live the life that a good person should. The just world fallacy, thy name is Rain Sinclair. Aw, this is a rough crossover. We've talked about this in Exterminators too, but man, the way these two interlock and interplay is just a damn mess. Well, I will say New Mutants Fair is much better than Exterminators. I think you could read the New Mutants portion of Inferno by itself and have it be a complete story with only a few very minor gaps. You know, I wonder about that. I wonder if it really fares better or if we're just sort of interpreting it that way because we've just read Exterminators, so there's nothing that's confusing us in this. 
That could be, but I do feel like all you really need to know is, oh, there are some other kids, they got caught up in this somehow too, and now the two teams are teaming up. Like, I don't think you need to know much more than that. I don't know, man. The stuff with the computer, the stuff with Nastir becoming infected with the techno-organic virus, which he does at this point, by the way. That's a really significant plot point. He also turns bright red as a byproduct. Well, you know, he's a computer, and everyone knows that if you have a red logic board, it's faster. I learned that back in computer school. I didn't go to computer school. Anyway... A handful of the New Mutants and Exterminators are injured, and they prudently and for once ever in a comic book decide that the kids with the severe head injuries should maybe sit out the next round. So they do. Yeah. Which is cool. And and Danny is also incapacitated by the fact that she keeps on having Valkyrie death visions, which at this point she does anytime there's peril, which is really stupid. They're useless. Like you're in literal hell in New York. The streets are eating people and you're going, oh, my God, someone might die. Really? Thank you for that brilliant insight of Asgardian wisdom, Danielle Moonstar, we would never have fucking guessed. Well, to be fair, Mirage does seem to be just as annoyed with this happening as we are. She's like, goddamn stupid visions. I don't need these. I know people are dying. But yeah, so Mirage and Rusty and Skids and Gossamer all stay behind at a nearby church that takes shelter there to take care of Artie and Leech and the babies that have been rescued from the Sky Pentagram. Ilyana, meanwhile, has been separated from the group, and she is basically on an Alice in Hell tumble through a series of different settings full of anthropomorphic furniture and stuff, basically an entire dimension trying to aggressively gaslight her. It is super messed up. And here is where Brett Blevins art just freaking shines. And by shines, I mean, it's super dark and messed up and creepy. But yeah, like she starts off in this horrifying hell diner. Like there are these tiny nuns and priests diving into a meat grinder to create this weird oily milkshake, which itself has eyes and a mouth and is in this grinning bucket trying to convince her to drink it. From there, she falls into some kind of demonic pet shop with you know, horrifying cages and tanks closing and opening at irregular cramped and angles. The angles in here are so much of what makes it look so wrong. You know, you mentioned when we were talking about it this morning, you mentioned the Milkman conspiracy from Psychonauts and just sort of oh, the yeah. weird offness of the settings. And that's a huge part of it here. Stuff just feels off, like even the things that aren't explicitly demonic. And here she's surrounded by these creepy animals all just sort of yelling at her in, in a cluster of balloons. You're the one who's dangerous. Just look at you. Horns. And a tail. Don't deny it. You're the animal. Crazy as a loon. Smart like a fox. Mad as a hornet. A wet hen. A mad dog. And just that kind of overwhelming back and forth, back and forth dialogue, like it's just sort of pummeling her down in addition to the very scenery itself closing in on her. It's this wonderful nightmare. You know what reminds me of weirdly, though? The Lady Bamfs from the Nightcrawler miniseries who went back and forth and back and forth, except it would be like if they were horrible animals and or inanimate objects in a hell dimension and terrifying. So I guess well, it's, it's really it's just the same the, sense of a swarm. What you mentioned that all of these really remind me of is Toontown is Who Framed Roger Rabbit is sort of the more adult, weird cartoons. For me, it also reminds me a lot of the more sort of frenetic nightmarish sequences in older cartoons like Looney Tunes. Like those got dark and weird, man. Those got really dark and really weird. They totally did. I mentioned the comparison to the Nightcrawler miniseries, which was not written by Simonson, but I gotta say, Louise Simonson, I think, is the only author that could have done a story like this. Chris Claremont can certainly get, you know, goofy and scary, but this particular mix of goofy and scary, this cartoonish hellishness that still has this real poignancy and drama to it, that is straight up Louise Simonson, and she excels at it. I'm thinking of other writers who are working concurrently with her on this line, and other writers whose tone this reminds me of. Claremont is the obvious comparison, and this is, you know, the big stuff and the sort of scourging character drama. The other writer who a lot of this brings to mind is Annie Nascenti. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the frenetic pace. But I think Nascenti, when she goes there, goes there with a lot of almost sort of tongue-in-cheek satirical mania. And this 
isn't satire. This isn't a story about New York, and it's not a story about cultural standards. Those things are factors, but it never, ever, ever strays from being a story about Ileana Rasputin. Making the story that centrally and fundamentally character-driven and pulling on all of those tricks and tools from the other writers who've come before her, I think is one of Louise Simonson's greatest strengths. We've been seeing her, and we're going to see her continue to do that on X Factor, and we definitely see it here in New Mutants. And in fact, I mean, I think the next scene that Ileana is sucked into could easily have been this cultural commentary. She's pulled into a beauty shop and she's given this weird hellish makeover by, again, these overwhelming barrage of voices and actions of inanimate objects. And we should say, too, that what all of these guys are trying to do, what the diner was trying to do, what the pet store was trying to do, what the beauty shop is trying to do is get her to snap, get her to kill things, get her to become fully the dark child. And so... This is what it takes because she's given this makeover. She's, you know, now in her scaly red demonic form with giant fancy hair and lots of like mascara and big pouty lips from lipstick and stuff. And she looks in the mirror and she sees what she's become, not just the makeup, but the demonic form, the demonic essence that the makeup is accenting. And well, that's when she loses and it. Nominally covering the layers of pretense and monstrousness and the idea. Again, it's almost like a twisted satire of the way she described herself before of the demon with the facade of being the girl. She loses it. She strikes out. She kills this anthropomorphic chair. She kills a chair. That's right. She kills right. a chair. Oh and God. it's like gleeful to be killed as it's just like spurting blood and grinning maniacally. It is pretty messed up. Because again, all of the demons, all of the possessed objects are trying to bring her to this point, to this climax, to this ultimate final step and final fall. And Nastier is there to gloat over it. Learn from this, my lovely dark child, that in limbo, there was never a right path. All paths there, even the right paths, lead to greater evil. And she is just so frustrated and furious and anguished, and she lashes out at Nastier, and as she does, she manifests yet another dark child form. And this one's very different. This one, I mean, it's demonic, certainly, but it's almost pure. She's wearing this full body suit of armor, like even covering her entire face. Like you can't see any of her skin at all anymore, you know, covered in silver spikes. But it looks kind of like her earlier soul armor, but overwhelming. Like, it's almost like she's trying to create a barrier between herself and the world, between the evil without and the good within, or the good without and the evil within. I sort of think of this, and it's not the name in the comic, I don't know where I pulled it from, as the Celestial Dark Child, because it's very much the demonic form, but she's seamless silver, and that's a really big deal, and that's an important symbol, because part of the deal with her sword, part of the deal with her pentagram, her scrying circle, the way she works, is that she uses evil symbols, but her magic is still silver, which is the color of good magic in Limbo. That's a really important plot point earlier on. And her being encased in that, having that be, you know, the final evolution of the Dark Child, but that that seamless shining silver, feels like her reasserting control. Even though it's trapping her in that, it is being overwritten with something that is much more fundamental to Ilyana and much more a symbol of Ilyana grasping and claiming agency. But nonetheless, she is just a mess at this point, and so that's where we end the middle chapter of Inferno and New Mutants, with her just collapsed on the ground and Sim nearby, chomping a cigar and gloating. That brings us to the third and final issue of New Mutants Inferno. This is called The Gift. Hey, that was the same name as the X-Men Alpha Flight series. Has this title ever actually been used unironically? Like, I'm genuinely curious. I doubt it. I should note that in New Mutant 72, the next issue tease lists the title as Shell Game, which is also super on the nose and an awesome title, but I can kind of see why they didn't go with it. Yeah, it seems a little, uh, I don't know, perhaps lacks some of the gravitas of the gift for a story as important as the one in this issue. Also, the cover is a Crisis on Infinite Earth's Death of Supergirl homage, so take a drink. 
And Cannonball has also been yelling about how he's invulnerable while blasting all over the place. So you know what? Actually, just keep drinking. Drink until it feels better. Drink to forget. Yeah. We get some more captions here that are telling us kind of about Ilyana's inner struggle, because again, this is fully her story about her ever-growing temptation to be perfectly evil instead of failing at being good. Now a proud voice whispers, If you cannot be perfect in beauty and goodness, why not be perfect in evil? Without the dark power, you are nothing. An empty shell, a vacuum, that which nature abhors. With it, you are the dark child. Your existence has meaning. Already you have done much. You have brought limbo to a corner of Earth. You could do so much more. And as this is all going on, the New Mutants and the Exterminators, which is to say most of the New Mutants plus Richter and Boom Boom, are flying through the city streets on a giant superhero-looking warlock. And this is where we get to see Brett Blevins just go nuts with design. Like, the streets are just curling around like they're their own entity. There are, uh, you know, stoplights that are leering at the New Mutants. There's a street sign with a giant eyeball, which uh, lists their location as the corner of Ha 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 You and Lose, which I freaking love. So here's the thing. I love Blevins on this story. I really do. I absolutely love him. I'm really glad he's the one who drew it. Given an unlimited amount of money and creative availability, I would love to pay Bill Sienkiewicz to redraw this issue just to see what he would have done with it. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know if that should have been like, you know, the third chapter, but I want to see the Bill Sienkiewicz version of this. That would be incredible. Yeah. Right? I mean, really, actually, of all of Inferno. Seriously. Now, the inner circle are also fighting. Whether to save the city or themselves is questionable. Again, you know, the, the Hellfire Club's basic attitude towards saving Earth is that it's where they keep their stuff. Right. I mean, they've never had any ethics to what they fight for. They're not fighting for mutant rights. They're fighting for power. Which makes them the perfect targets for a demonic deal as Nastier approaches them to make one, which the New Mutants overhear because the New Mutants come in at the wrong point of precisely every conversation to make Magneto seem as evil as possible. Seriously, their eavesdropping is very anti-Magneto. Like, is their eavesdropping itself sentient? Does it have an agenda? Does it have an anti-Magneto agenda? Oh my god, maybe it's like latent telepathic suggestion from Professor Xavier and his incipient paranoia about Magneto running the school. It's like baby Onslaught. <laughs> oh jeez. This story does not need Onslaught. Speaking of the X-Men and characters who have been gone for a long time and haven't intersected for a long time, I think we've mentioned that Inferno is the let's get the band back together, or at least the disparate and roving bands back together. And so here we see a character who I don't think we could have wrapped up this story without. That is Colossus. The last time Colossus and Ileana were in the same place, he suddenly appeared. He was teleported into limbo out of nowhere. Ileana thought that she was summoning his ghost. She didn't realize it was actually her living brother fighting alongside her. He helped her fight and then he left. Yeah, that was an Uncanny X-Men number 231. And so now he's in New York, having been brought here by the Inferno-related events going on in Uncanny X-Men. And he realizes he's seeing stuff from Limbo, which means that somewhere around here is his sister, Ilyana Rasputin, and therefore his job is to help her because he is a damn good brother. And I love how everything is just coming together. Like, we've talked about this as the climax of Ilyana Rasputin's story. For me, honestly, this is kind of the climax of the whole New Mutants series so far. Like, all the Limbo stuff, all the Transmode virus stuff, Ilyana's background, Rain getting over some of her issues, like, so much is coming together right here. You described Ileana as being the protagonist of New Mutants at this point. 
And I was thinking, no, it's a team book. But then I realized how seamlessly that focus had shifted over time because at first it was very much Danny, like she was the main character. And even then it's remained a really good ensemble. But yeah, the vocal characters have shifted so smoothly that we almost didn't see it happening until it was. Yeah. So Colossus, unfortunately, he's a strong dude, but he is not strong enough to stand up to the united forces of Limbo and their creepy anthropomorphic street signs. And he is caught and dragged off to Sim. And Ilyana sees that and figures, okay, you know what? Everyone I'm trying to protect, everyone I'm trying to save, all the good in the world that I'm trying to keep safe, here is my brother, the best person I know. Who's alive, hot damn. Who is alive when I thought he was dead. All right, I've got to fight harder than I've ever fought before. And it just turns into this big melee as Ilyana and Sim and Colossus are just crashing through the streets and end up falling through the wall of a pawn shop. Where the objects inside immediately and fully embrace the double entendre. Always been everyone's pawn. Shoved and kicked here and there. Held as collateral for power. Insult herself. Pawn became a queen, though. Queen of darkness. Dark queen. Alone on the board. Checked at every move. Has to play the game out to the end. And that right there, that last statement is, I think, kind of what sums it all up. Has to play the game out to the end. Ilyana, there was never a way she could escape this. As soon as she was taken to Limbo when she was a little girl, her fate was basically sealed. It was really just a question of how she handled it, but she was going to have to deal with this stuff. So we've talked before about Magic's story as a Greek tragedy, about, again, it being about the conflict between agency and inevitability. And as it progresses, it becomes clearer and clearer that this is a fight she can't win. This is a fight she could never win. For me, that's one of the definitive characteristics of a lot of the best X-Men stories, actually. I feel like the best X-Men stories are basically Kobayashi Maru stories. Oh, from Star Trek, yeah. Yeah, they aren't about how to win. They're about how to lose with meaning. So, you know, the Dark Phoenix Saga is that. The Brood Saga is largely that until they get saved by a deus ex machina at the very, very end. Yeah. Dallas, obviously, is that. And, 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 the and this is very, very much that. In a lot of ways, I think that's sort of the ultimate extension of the X-Men's theme and the ultimate realization of that. Fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them is fighting for something that you recognize as much bigger than yourself and much bigger than your individual interests. And often that fight and often the victories in that fight are going to be fundamentally pyrrhic. And so, yeah, I think the best X-Men fights as they play out thematically are largely, not entirely, but very, very frequently about losing and about loss. And about inevitable loss. Again, I keep on going back to the Kobayashi Maru metaphor because it's the absolutely unbeatable scenario. And it's not about hacking the computer. It's not about how you win it. It's how you make that loss still count. Even when you're just beaten down at every turn. I mean, like what happens right here when Colossus finally sees what's going on? He sees Ilyana in this dark child form covered in armor. And he hasn't seen her. This is the first he's seen her since he got to New York. And he finally recognizes her. Ilyana? No. Monster, what have you done to her? No, I didn't want you to know. I was almost glad that you were dead. So you would never see me like this. She was so invested in seeming like a human, like a good person to her brother, the best person she knows, and now he's seen all of her darkness. In being present, in being the person who the people around her wanted her to be and needed her to be. And she's actually made reference to that in the past, that the only reason she's not in dark child form all the time is because she wants to be that for her friends, for her family, for her loved ones. And at this point, she teleports away, leaving Sim to mock Colossus for thinking that he was helping her in, you know, Kenny X-Men 231. Sim, you dick. Sim is a total dick. Back in Limbo, Ilyana is trying to convince herself to stay in, and Rain comes and tries to talk her out of it. Ilyana, come back. I, I can't. 
I see now how wrong I was to turn my back on Limbo. Once I won, I had to rule it. In trying to escape, I created a power vacuum which Sim and others rushed to fill with disastrous results for our Earth. And the art here on Rain as she just pleads with Ilyana is just so effective, so evocative. You didn't mean to do all this. It's not your fault. Can't you come back? Just be our Ilyana, our friend. Ilyana is sentenced to her throne. She's placed there by demons. I wish. Oh, how I wish. No. The time for that is past. If I evade my destiny, the earth will be destroyed. This is where I belong. Besides, as, as the dark child, I'm special, powerful. I control the hordes of limbo. Why would I ever want to be an ordinary girl again? And so she's sitting here on her throne, looking into her scrying glass, reconstructed after her fight with Forge a number of issues ago. And she sees that even though now she has this power, even though now she's in control of Limbo, Manhattan and Earth are irrevocably lost. Yeah, like her brother is clearly going to die. Mirage's death visions make it very clear that the whole Earth is it's going to be overrun by demons. The world is literally going to end. And so she makes a decision to fix it. And she decides to do it basically at the cost of her own life. And she teleports away. This leaves the New Mutants at the edge of the throne room facing a sea of teleport discs. Where they lead, when they lead, none of them can tell. It actually reminds me a lot of the Sea of Holes from the Beatles' Yellow Submarine movie. Oh, it totally does. It totally does, yeah. Wow, that just got weirdly upbeat for such a dark scene. Yay. Aww, but Yeah, Jeremy. and I mean, Rain is sitting here like, all right, I know that these all lead somewhere. I know that we're basically stuck here forever. But you know what? Somewhere there's that little girl. Maybe we can fix things. Maybe we can, you know, undo all of this pain. We can fix Inferno. We can prevent magic from ever having to turn into this dark self that she hates so much. And Rain dives into the nearest teleport disc, just hoping it's going to take her where it needs to. And somehow, miraculously, it does. She is able to find and retrieve Kid Ilyana and bring her back. But just as she does, the adult dark child comes back to confront them. And if there's anything we know about Ilyana, it's that she really, really can't deal with who she used to be. You... You caused all of this. You should have died like the others. But you fought to live, to become what only I could become, and in that process to die inside a little bit at a time until there is nothing left. Ignorant child, see, know what you will be. What I am. And at this point, she transforms into yet another and her final form. She's this being of fire, this demon woman of pure energy. Kind of reminds me of the Dark Phoenix, actually. I am power. I should destroy you for what you've made of me. No, Ilyana, no. That's Limbo's way. The way that traps you here. If we save her, the innocent child you came from, might we not save you and the world as well? Please, Ilyana, this time, you have a choice. <laughs> Master told me that in Limbo there's no such thing as a right choice. But he's a demon, a master of deception, while you... Perhaps you are right, and we can beat him in his own game. The only choice is to remove the choice, to negate my presence in limbo as if I had never existed here at all. Destiny's prophecy was that I must learn. How can I learn? I am the dark child, shut away from life, always on the outside looking in. But can I learn? Have I? Is this the answer? And back in New York, a gigantic stepping disc shoots a pillar of fire into the sky. And Ilyana, this light child, throws her sword into it as the demons and Sim are all swept back into limbo. 
And she just glows brighter and brighter and brighter until the New Mutants can't see anything at all. Rain loses her grip on the child. It's ripped away from her. And as this happens, Danny's visions of death dissipate. The demons streaming in, you know, are pulled back into limbo. And Rain is left in New York holding Liana's armored form crushed and broken as Colossus runs toward her. And there's a voice from inside calling for help. So Colossus tears away the armor and finds Ileana, the six-year-old kid, uncorrupted as she was within. It's like pulling Dana Barrett out of a terror dog at the end of Ghostbusters. But yeah, there's this little girl. There's this innocent child before Limbo got to her, before Limbo turned her into the dark, self-loathing form that she ended up. And she's okay, but she's not the Ileana that we know. That Ileana is gone. Yeah, this is effectively, I think, the end of Ileana Rasputin's story, at least as it is for a very, very, very long time. The younger Ileana is going to survive for a while, and she's going to stick around for a bit, but her role is largely going to be what it was before Limbo, which is, you know, existing kind of in the background of things. And the Ileana, who was one of the New Mutants, who was the best friend and the teammate of the other kids for this long, is, for the time being, for the very, very long time being, and in some ways forever, effectively dead. And this is such an impressive move on Louise Simonson's part, because really ever since Ileana showed up in New Mutants, she became more and more of a central character, until for the last many arcs, I think she's basically been the main character. Her struggle has been the struggle at the heart of this entire book. And to kill that character, to have this gigantic storyline that we've been building up to for literally years end with, if not her death, at least her disappearing, all the parts of her that we recognize disappearing, that's huge. In a way, I think of this as basically the end of New Mutants Volume 1. Yes, we have almost 30 issues left, and there's some good stuff in there, but it's a different book. It's a different book without Ileana Rasputin at the center. Well, it's a different book. It's a different team. It's a different dynamic. It's going to be a different place soon, and this really bookends that. You know, I talked earlier about Ileana's story being a fairy tale, and I think there's nowhere that it's more that than at the ending. You know, it's sacrificing and fighting against impossible odds, choosing to again to die, to go out, and to lose in a way that preserves meaning and preserves identity and who you were. And in hopes, you know, not of victory and not of survival, but of maybe in some form or other a second chance and a return to a starting point. And if that's not a fairy tale ending, I don't really know what it is because fairy tales are just bleak as all hell. So Ileana doesn't exactly come back, but that's a door that Louise Simonson deliberately left open here. It's something that she's talked about in a number of interviews. And specifically, again, you know, I talked about the Ileana we know being dead and gone. And that's because the kid who's come back is a different Ileana Rasputin. She's not the same character. She's one who got pulled out of Limbo before she could go all the way through, but who didn't erase the parallel version. Like everyone still remembers teenage Ileana and magic, and she still had lasting and significant impact. She's still in photographs. And there are echoes of her that are going to stick around. Her soul sword in particular is going to become a very, very, very significant MacGuffin in the Marvel Universe for a very long time. Yeah. And Simonson was actually surprised that nobody brought her back, leaving the options that Simonson herself felt were there. This is from an interview on Comic Book Resources. Supposedly, at the conclusion of the Inferno crossover, she died heroically and her younger, innocent self was retrieved from her armor. And I know most folks thought the real Ileana was dead, but I was sure somebody would figure out very soon that she had to still be alive and in limbo, that she had thrust an earlier version of herself into her armor, saving her own innocent self and exiling the evil self she'd become to Limbo eternally. Heck, the existence of multiple Ilyanas from different times, part of Limbo's magic, had already been clearly established in New Mutants continuity. I'm amazed the character was left in Limbo, literally and figuratively, all these years. 
So that dangling thread is finally going to get pulled in a story called Ex and Furnace some 20 odd years later, and then later on more thoroughly in Fall of the New Mutants, which is a story hook that I love involving what happened to all of the mutant babies who were kidnapped during Inferno. The other place where it's going to pop up significantly is going to be in the miniseries Secret Wars Inferno, which is set in a New York that fell absolutely and irrevocably during Inferno and where Ilyana just fully became the Dark Child. Yeah, that one's written by Dennis Hopeless very recently, and it's about Colossus going every year back to the center of Manhattan to try to redeem his sister. It's a really good story and a damn fine follow-up to the original Inferno. Speaking of Inferno, we will be back in those pages next week. But for now, you've got questions. Neutral Fat-Free Milk Hotel, that's a great name, asks, Do you ever wish that Xavier School was just that? That there wouldn't be a danger room or the whole child soldier thing? Or maybe they could just reopen the Massachusetts Academy? I think the Xavier School actually kind of has been that to an extent a few times. Most significantly during the Wolverine and the X-Men series, both of them. So the thing with the Xavier School, the, the big formative part, is that it's run by Charles Xavier, who is functionally incapable of creating a school that isn't a superhero feeder program. I mean, he nominally sets out to do that with New Mutants, and it's immediately really obvious that no, that's not what's happening. The thing with having superpowers in the Marvel Universe, where things explode and interdimensional holes open regularly, like, I can totally accept the Danger Room as part of a fairly comprehensive alternative education in a universe as weird as the Marvel Universe. Like, it kind of makes sense to me. And so the Wolverine and the X-Men school seems like the most functional one, but honestly, I think the problems with the Xavier school as separate from the X-Men is never going to happen in any situation where it's functionally affiliated with a superhero team. If you've got that, then the kids are going to see growing up and becoming X-Men as the ultimate graduation goal, that that's what they're shooting for, no matter how much you tell them that that's not the case. In fact, actually, I'm going to go ahead and say that it's a really bad idea for schools to be affiliated with superhero teams, period, for that reason. Don't do that. That's really irresponsible. Also, Charles Xavier should never, under any circumstances, be responsible for or allowed to create curricula or be responsible for minors. (laughs) This is how I feel about it. And the Massachusetts Academy is cool. I really like it as kind of an alternate take. So it may be a bad idea logistically and ethically to have this school associated with a superhero team, you know, such that it is indeed training child soldiers, etc. But I gotta say, it does make for some damn fine story hooks. I mean, some of my favorite eras of New Mutants are where school is the primary setting, you know, where Magneto's the headmaster and all that, but they're getting into trouble left and right because they just can't stop themselves from being superheroes. I think that makes for awesome story fodder, especially in X-Men. Beatles1234 asks on Tumblr, what is your favorite artistic interpretation of Rain Sinclair's transitional form? You know, the form where she's in between a wolf and a human. Okay, so I have a few. Uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's version of Rain's corrupted by dagger form and that weird cloak and dagger arc of New Mutants was really good. It was just so messy and sketchy and like painful looking. I also really dig Larry Stroman's version of uh, the stuck in transition form that Rain is in after the Extinction Agenda when she's on X Factor. That's just a really cool look and it's striking. I mean, as much as Farrell was around at the same time and kind of aped the same look, it looked better on Wolfsbane. And I like Wolfsbane better than Farrell anyway. I also really like Carlo Barberi's version of Rain from New Mutants Volume 2, where she's, you know, like still wearing clothes a lot of the time and still looks very human. She looks kind of like a werewolf. Like, I don't know, she kind of reminds me of, um, of a character from like the Teen Wolf movie or something. So yeah, all three of those are awesome. Yeah, I like the evolution of her form. I like how organically it goes and how organically her relationship to that transitional form changes, you know, from where it starts with Bob McCloud to eventually, I think, Barbaria is where it's largely ended up more recently and that really parallels the evolution of the character. Totally. So we are a listener-supported podcast and project, and some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a number of fictional characters. To that end, I believe I am turning things over today to the Demon Lord Belasco. 
This is an outrage. After all my centuries of study, after all the torment I inflicted upon my apprentice Ilyana Rasputin, after all the fashion consideration I put toward my tunic and tiny horns, I am forgotten in favor of the oafish brute Sim, that foolish pretender Nastier, and my idiot servants Rieskelito and Sarsbot. Ilyana's soul should have been mine. Times Square should have been mine. Inferno itself should have been mine. As soon as I can find my way back into continuity, I'll show them all. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and ExplainTheXMen.com. Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. Next week, we finally step into the heart of Inferno. As the X-Men and X-Factor make their way to Manhattan, Madeline Pryor goes nuclear. And Havoc gets his worst costume yet. (laughs) 